Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Can we survive if Ukraine does not? That is a question that all of us should ask. Are we surprised that the forces of evil are alive and aggressive in today's world? <laughs> I'm not surprised, and you shouldn't be either. I write and sing about it because I can feel it. You should know about it because you can see. Unless you have a blind eye to it and don't want to do anything about it, you can see it. Those of us who know hate recognize the commonality of inhumanity. It is good versus evil, right versus wrong, tyranny over liberty. This is not just a Ukrainian war. Today, Ukraine is in the battle for the soul of the world. As we speak, the fighting forces of evil, we have seen what evil has and can do. Doesn't matter what country or color. Now, evil threatens the sovereignty of one country and the sanctity of all others. What additional tragedies will it take for us to stop this aggression? Hate has no color, has no loyalty, greed has no commitment but to itself. Only you, the people, can prevent World War III. We must stand up to hate and kill hate before it kills us. I believe in the power of the people, all the people. We can stop this right now. That was Stevie Wonder, who apparently has vision and wisdom uh, that is beyond measure. Um, and he asked a question, which I start off the show reading from Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which we will be studying tonight in Office Hours with Dr. Greg Carr in Nubia. And as I'm reading the book, I'm like, my goodness, you know, here we are again, right back to this question of what are we going to do? You know, because these bounds, these drawn lines do not separate humanity. Only we separ- separate humanity. And that's what what Stevie Wonder is talking about. And I led the show with Mia Motley's speech yesterday in Ghana, talking about their 65th uh, anniversary of their freedom, their independence. And I think it's all tied in. And I think Africa might be at the center of it. So I was like, let's bring in an expert who two weeks ago, nobody was talking to. She was just minding her damn business, getting her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Now she's everywhere, and she's here today. Let me welcome in historian, writer, and PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania in history, Kimberly St. Julian Vernon. Welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to see you everywhere. But more importantly, you know, it's like media has been very lazy for the last decade or so going to the same people about the same things. Cause they don't do any work. You were in my timeline for a while. I reached out to you a while. We worked it out for you to be here today. Um, what has the last couple of weeks been like for you before we get into why you came here? Um, before two weeks ago, I was mm-hmm. just a PhD student who was trying to not like drink coffee all the time and like eat vegetables occasionally. Um, and I was tweeting about Ukraine, like before the war started, because like my research is on Ukraine and Russia, and just trying to help people understand like the diplomatic negotiations that were going on. 
And then now I have like almost a hundred thousand Twitter followers. And I, I was on CNN this morning and I'm just like, I also need to read three books this week and grade papers. So it's really weird. <laughs> I know about that. I'm, I'm laughing because I have an inbox full of papers to grade as well. So I sit in solidarity and pain with you, Dr. Julian Vernard. Um, Why, you know, as a black woman, at, at the University of Pennsylvania, why did you focus on Ukraine and Russia as your discipline? So it goes back to elementary school. Um, I watched this eight-hour miniseries called Russian Land of the Czars, and I was like, okay, it's just like Texas. I get this. I'm from Texas, if you can't tell by my accent. And I can, in my freshman year of college, my first class I ever signed up for was a Soviet history course called Angels of Death, Russia Under Lenin and Stalin. And since then, I've just been like obsessed with the region. I've worked on it. I got my master's degree from Harvard in Russian, Eastern European, Central Asian studies. I'm doing my PhD now in Russian and Soviet history and Eastern European history. I'm one of a handful of, of people of color who work on this history in the United States. And then you go to Ukraine. And as far as I know, there's two of us. There's me and Terrell Starr. And, and that's it, <laughs> you know, the entire country. But it's it's really I fell in love with the country. I, I lived in Ukraine. I did research in Ukraine and I fell wait, in love with wait, it. Wait, pause, pause. Uh, when when did you live in Ukraine and what was that experience? Because, you know, I really, I've, I'm, I was so fascinated by your journey. And for us, you know, I'm, I'm evolving into this understanding of our global impact, black people. Mm-hmm. Once we all evolve into that understanding of what that power looks like, I'm like, it's game over. Come on, y'all, wake the hell up. But you, living with your Afro, y'all, she's natural, right? She's <laughs> natural. You're in Ukraine. Did you have the natural then, or were you? No. Okay. So <laughs> I was in Ukraine in 2013. I was a baby grad student. I was working on my master's. Um, and I had I got a weave put in because also no black hair care product. Uh, it was just hard to maintain. Um, uh, but yeah, and I was like, oh, I'll try to look less black. And so I'll just have straight hair and have a weep. Like, yeah, that's going to erase all this melanin. Um, but yeah, it was, I was there in 2013. I was in Kiev and Odessa, so the capital and in, in, in southern Ukraine. Um, and that's where I discovered Afro-Ukrainians. That's where I discovered that there is a diaspora. And I, and I knew about it in Russia. I didn't know about Ukraine. Um, I met Africans in Bulgaria when I was there uh, working at an orphanage. We are everywhere. The diaspora is everywhere. And I think that's important for us to remember. Like right now, you know, the war in Ukraine, we've seen some absolutely terrifying and horrible scenes of racism against African students, against Indian students, Middle Eastern students. And I've seen a lot of, of Black Americans say, well, why should we care about this country? We don't, why should we care if they lose the war to Russia? They should lose because they're racist. And it hurts because there are Afro-Ukrainians. There are Black people who are Ukrainian citizens. This is their home that's being destroyed. All these African students are victims of Putin's aggression. And I promise you, if you think the scenes you've seen from Ukraine are horrible, the scenes in Russia are downright terrifying. African students, African residents are regularly uh, you know, abused by the police. They're victims of violence. Um, so I think Russia is not the good person in this situation, either by invading Ukraine or by using what's happening, the scenes of racism against Ukraine. And and I just tweeted a few minutes ago, the foreign ministry of Russia is on their Twitter page in English, has tweeted a video of these African students. 
and they're saying, you know, look at how they're treated in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you started the war. You're the reason why they can't leave. So yeah, I can talk about this all day, but yeah, let's do it here. (laughs) Like the diaspora is here and we matter and we are global and our experiences are so different, but I think that's what makes this so beautiful. And when people think of Ukraine as a white country or Russia as a white country, it erases our history in these countries. African, you know, presence has been in Russia and Ukraine since the 19th century, you know, and actually the 18th century when you have like Alexander Pushkin, the father of modern Russian is a descendant of a black slave. And like people in America don't know that, but you know, we have done such amazing things for Russian and Slavic culture. And so when Ukraine, there are Afro-Russian, there are Afro-Ukrainians, they exist. And two of them are very famous. There's Jean Belanouk, and I've written about him. He is a Greco-Roman wrestler, gold medalist from the Summer Olympics. And he's a member of the Ukrainian parliament right now. He's helping this war effort. He's a member of the Ukrainian government and he's Afro-Ukrainian. And he claims both. He says, I am black and I am Ukrainian. And you can't take either of those away from me. Um, Gaitana, she's a singer. Eurovision is super popular. How do you yeah, spell I've never that? gotten into Gaitana, G-A-I-T-A-N-A. Um, and so she's a hugely popular singer in Ukraine and she's Afro-Ukrainian. She represented Ukraine in Eurovision um, a few years ago. And there was some uproar about her representing Ukraine. And it was the question, well, how can she represent Ukraine? She's black. She's a native Ukrainian speaker. She speaks Russian. She has grown up her entire life in Ukraine, same as Jean Belanouk. But what happens is anti-black racism, it looks different in Ukraine and in Russia. It looks like you can't be a Slav and be black. So they're denied their Ukrainian or Russian roots. And so they have that harm against them. And but now their home country is being invaded and you have added harms to that, but also anti-Black racism that has existed in Eastern Europe. I think what we're seeing is the war has exacerbated this. And now it's public and it's on international media. But for those of us who have lived and worked in the region, unfortunately, this isn't new. You know, this is what many of us have experienced. We're talking with Kimberly St. Julian Von Arn. Am I saying the Von Arn properly? Varnon. Varnon. Oh, because you're Texas? From Texas is Varnon? Yes. All right. See, I'll I'll make it more fancy. I tried tried (laughs) to make it for you. Kimberly St. Julian Varnon is here. Uh, This is your chance. There are a lot of people with a lot of things to say with no expertise, no study, no, they haven't read a book, they haven't read an article, they don't know anything, they just got opinions, they just throwing them off their diggleberries and out there in them streets talking. This woman knows what she's talking about. If you have a question about this region, here's your chance to get it from an expert. 866-801-8255. I've read this uh, afternoon, Dr. Julian Varnon, that um, Putin took time off from bombing the hell out of Ukraine to wish Ghana a happy uh, anniversary of their their independence and and our our you know hopefully we will come together to do and i was like this guy is craftier than a mug they also meddled in 2015 2016 in our elections targeting black people what does putin know that that white america so-called white america here is like completely missing the boat or white europe completely missing the boat why is he doing this and what is what's really behind this seeming support of, of black people. 
I think a key thing we have to remember is Putin is very much a political player. And so you people like to say Putin's crazy or Putin's a KGB operative. It's like, no, Putin understands realpolitik. He understands the power of military strength, but he also understands optics and how domestic politics influence how foreign countries can respond to Russia's behavior. And we're, I mean, we're seeing that right now. But for this man to, you know, hi, Ghana, welcome, celebrate your independence while he's bombing Ghanaian students in Ukraine. And you're just like, people believe this. And like, my Twitter is lit up now with people saying like, I'm being racist against Africans for telling African students to stay in bomb shelters <laughs> to protect them from Russian bombs, right? And so he's very good. And I, and you know, Russia, when it was part of the Soviet Union, they played a very important role in the decolonizing process for Africa, supporting African governments and providing grain and you know weaponry for African governments. And so Putin knows that, and Putin has been building on that. Russia has been heavily investing in the continent for the past two decades. And he knows that. So he knows where his money is going. He knows where his oil and gas is going and he's shoring up these relationships. But I think it was also powerful at one of the UN Security Council meetings when the UN ambassador, I think it's the Kenyan UN ambassador, mm -hmm. yes. laid it out. And he, he said, we know what colonization and what imperialism looks like. And this is what's happening in Ukraine. Mm. And so, I think that was powerful. And I think that's also why Putin is making sure he congratulates Ghana because he knows many of these African countries know what's up and they're not happy about the way their students are being treated in Ukraine. And he can't flip it and say, this is the Ukrainians fault when he's the one who's bombing them. Well, the gaslighting is, is uh, as American right now as apple pie. This is where we're in the gaslight era. They, they're going to call this the age of misinformation, disinformation, and gaslighting because all of that reigns supreme. And you're talking about uh, Ambassador Martin Kimani, who we played that clip. And I was like, okay, very first days, he got it. Um, it <laughs> And I think Ghana abstained from everybody else. I think there was like uh, 30 plus nations, including China, abstained when they, the U.N. Uh, voted to sanction uh, Russia. I think Ghana was one of the nations. Ghana, I think it was uh, uh, Mali and a few other mm -hmm. African nations were like, mm, we're not going to vote uh, to to sanction uh, Russia. What's, and I, and I, I want people to be really cautious with their support of Russia. Because we got two sides supporting Russia. You got white nationalists and terrorists in America supporting Russia and some black people, which y'all in the same bed. Come, that's like Farrakhan and the KKK, or which has happened, by the way. There have been, you know, times in history where white nationalists and black power have, have gotten together because they have the same goal, I guess. Not really. <laughs> Can we wake up? What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Julian Varnon? I think it's telling. And I, I do, you need to think if you find yourself in the same breath agreeing with Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin, you need to really think about how you got there. Because these are two men who have no interest in Black anything besides Black suffering and white supremacy. And so, and I've seen this and like, I've been fighting this like crazy on social media, but there are nuances to this situation and we need to be able to hold, there can be instances of racism in Ukraine. That does not mean that Ukraine deserves what's happening to it. And also 
the like getting these African students, these foreign students of, of all colors out of Ukraine is still a priority. And the fact that they're stuck in these cities that are being leveled by the Russian military is no one's fault but Vladimir Putin's. And we have to remember that and really think about how this man has used black pain and black suffering in 2016 and 2020. You could look at his comments about the George Floyd protests in the United States, calling it looting, saying these are acts of violence, pointing out you know, black violence against white people in his speeches and saying that this would never happen in Russia. This is the man that you're supporting now in a neo-imperialist war against a former colony of the Russian empire. Right. So I think you just you need to think critically about where you stand and why you stand that way. We're talking with an actual um, person who is getting her doctorate in this uh, historian, University of Pennsylvania historian, uh, Ph.D. student, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. Uh, I got my history on Russia from the Kingsman. <laughs> no, no, I'm you know they had that one thing with the queen and then scotland and then you had the great britain germany and and russia the cousins and the fight in that scene and i was like oh that's what happened and then i got a little bit of it from inventing anna uh episode eight shonda rhymes they gave us a little russian oligarch history can you get yeah they, she did that shout out to shonda rhymes but i'm sure it wasn't complete nor you know it was just breadcrumbs What's the actual mm-hmm. history that, that hooked you that made this your journey and your path that got you so excited? Tell us the history. So what got me, hooked me in was the history of Imperial Russia, particularly Peter the Great. So imagine this humongous Russian man and he's like, you know, six foot seven and the average height's like five foot five. And he decides he wants to Europeanize Russia so he goes incognito as much as a man who's six foot seven can be incognito. And he travels around Europe to study shipbuilding and military and cultural things. And he brings them back to Russia. And he wants to force Russia to become Europeanized. And I remember vividly, like from this mini series and from one of the earliest things I read, there's a picture of him grabbing this Russian Orthodox priest by the beard and he's cutting off his beard. He didn't like long beards because he thought it was very old Russian. He wanted to Europeanize Russia. And I was just fascinated by this. And, you know, then you have Rasputin, which is probably one of the most famous parts of Russia. He's Russian in the history, Kingsman like too. Like the mad monk. Yeah. He's like, I, have, yeah. I have to watch this movie because yeah. I haven't seen it. But, oh my, Rasputin, like the mad monk in Homeboy can like suddenly cure anemia and hemophilia because the youngest son of Tsar Nicholas II was a hemophiliac. And he's the only person who could get, a, you know, Tsar, uh, Tsar Nicholas's son, Alexei, to stop bleeding. And then, spoiler alert, they kill him, you know, but it takes five times before they can kill him. They stab him, they poison him, they shoot him, but he dies by drowning because he was still alive after all this. And they find him on the banks of the Neva River. And I'm like, how can you not love this? This is so cool. And so that's what got me in was an Imperial Russian history. But I started doing Soviet history and the early Soviet period from like the establishment of the Soviet Union to the pre-war, pre-1939, I was just fascinated. The, the immense change, the cultural changes, the political changes, the economic changes. And I was really, what really I started, in, I was studying was the anti-religious campaigns. I wanted to understand like what part atheism played in the creation of the new Soviet woman in particular and like Soviet women's history. So that was what I looked at as an undergrad. As my, I did my master's work, I worked on the famine in Ukraine 
because I come from a farm in Southeast Texas. And I remember reading about the Ukrainian peasant. And like, so what you see now, like these little Ukrainian grandmas who were like cussing out these Russian soldiers, that goes all the way back. When the Bolsheviks were trying to force collectivize, you know, farming in Ukraine, you had these things called Babi Bunti. And it's like these Russian women, these grandmas, these Ukrainian women, they're fighting these, you know, Bolsheviks and they're not letting them collectivize. They're like chasing them with pitchforks and stuff. And let, let and people I was like, know, they, <laughs> Russia, Russia made it illegal for Ukrainians to own food, to have food. And they went house they to house them. to house to house and took everybody's food. If you were caught eating a bark of, of, you know, a bark off of a tree or a piece of wheat, you could be uh, put in jail or, or executed on site. And they starved. Yes. They literally starved to death millions of people. Yes. The numbers go anywhere from three to nine million. Uh, we still don't have a specific number. But, they, but they, like, I want people was... to sit in there for a second. Yeah. Starved to death. They starved <laughs> to death. Not in a concentration camp, in their homes, in their villages. They could well, not eat. the Soviet eat. Union was exporting grain. From, the, their, this, from was... this bread basket, from this place with yes. the richest soil, one of the richest plots of soil in the world. They couldn't yes. grow anything that they could eat. By exactly. law. They, they took every piece. And my thesis looks at the diaries of people who were living through it. And it's horrifying. And so many people, even those who did have food, they're witnessing their neighbors, you know, starve to death. And many of the communists who were engaged in, you know, collective others who were taking the grain, like half of them had a crisis of faith. And they're like, I can't be loyal to this. And many of them end up in the gulag. You know, they end up in prison camps. Because they they are they were revolted by what they see, and so the problem is like Russia still says today that this was an accident, that this is just a bad growing season, while Ukraine contends and it's true this is a man-made state-created famine, and so this famine has become part of the the national um, consciousness of post-Soviet Ukraine. And I remember when I was doing research in Ukraine, people would tell me my grandmother lived through that. Or my parents lived through that, but they never talked about it. So this trauma is still being worked through in Ukraine. And now you have this new trauma on top of that. We're going to take some calls. 866-801-8255. Kimberly, I I have so many questions. I I want to, you know, but you're here. So I'm not going to be greedy. Kimberly, St. Julian Varnon is here. Let's first go to Dale's been holding on uh, in Florida. Welcome to the Karen Hunter show. Hi. Hey, Karen, can you hear me? I can, barely. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I, I just, the question I want to ask her, and there's some things that I want to say to you also, but first to you, I just want to say that you are super. You know, I think that you're the best thing to slice bread and homemade ice cream and homemade peanut butter cookies. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank black you. Girl, black girl magic, I, I think, I believe, and I strongly believe this, that you are the poster child for black girl magic. I received that, and I'm going to give you a virtual hug, Dale. Thank you. And, okay, now to your, your guest, Ms. Vernon. Varn, uh, yes, it, it's Varnon. Varnon, I was being fancy. St. Julian Varnon. Okay. My question, um, with this no-fly zone that they're trying to come about, would that drive, I mean, pull the United States into this war? So that's a good question. And we've seen a lot of calls for the no-fly zone, but the problem is 
A no-fly zone, it doesn't like just drop a shield over Ukraine. A no-fly zone has to be executed, which would mean you would have, if NATO does do a no-fly zone, we are included in NATO, you would have to have American planes, you know, German, French, you know, British planes shooting at Russian planes. So that would put us in direct conflict with Russia. And as we know, Putin talks big and he does big. And he's already said any type of instance like that, he would be, he would say as a declaration of war on America's behalf. So that's why I don't, that's why NATO has consistently said no, no fly zone over Ukraine. There are rumors that, um, and I said this day one, we don't know what his health status is. We know he doesn't care about his people, but he could have gotten a sentence that he, he wants to go out in a blaze and take everybody with him. I was like, I'm not putting anything past this man. Uh, so I, I'm I'm being measured, not trying to be an alarmist, but I'm like, I don't think he cares about the future. And he has enough money to have a bunker where he could live forever if he needed to. Your thoughts on the threat that uh, the world will see something that they've never seen before if they come against me. Empty, bravado, or should we be taking it seriously? And if so, what should the response be? Because I'm, I'm of the thought that a bully like that you don't, you don't let you don't let them do anything. That's I'm of that thought. You don't, you know. Go ahead. Save so that's a good point. I and I have been working on Russia since I was 18 years old, and so we have to also know Putin is filthy rich. We have no idea that, but speculation like hundreds of millions, possibly a billion dollars, is hidden. So I think this is one way in which capitalism actually works for us. He is not going to, you know, do anything that would make him poor. <laughs> um, and so I think this is the question. I mean, there have been rumors about his mental status and his health. Um, it's like, well, if you know you're, you're on death's door, what do you do? You go out with the bang. And I can't let myself think about that so I can sleep at night. But um, I think something that we have seen is that we know he wants Eastern Ukraine. He, he's made that very clear. And even in his negotiation points, he's, he said with um, President Zelensky, he wants all of Luhansk and Donetsk, no NATO or EU for perpetuity for Ukraine. Um, so I think those are still very concrete demands. And honestly, Putin knows he will never win in a war, a direct conflict with the United States. That's been, a, I mean, if, if the the small, the relatively small Ukrainian military is already causing this much havoc with Russia. There is no competition, period. And so I think the nuclear threat, it's the only threat Putin has left. What can Putin threaten anyone else with, right? I mean, we've seen how the, the Russian army is having most of its success because of aerial assaults. That's the only reason they've made any ground really in Ukraine. So I think we have to also think about this Putin is not operating from a position of strength anywhere else in the world, but in Ukraine. So I think that's important to remember. Okay. That's optimistic. Let's go back to the phones. 866-801-8255. Except for that little part that I brought up. All right. Elliot, Elliot in New Jersey. Welcome. Thank you for calling. Hello. How you doing? How you doing? Hi to you guys. Uh, I have two quick questions. In 2014, uh, can you explain how that conflict started? And what and um, what? Why does Putin want to have the western eastern part, as you just said, of Ukraine? Like, what what is 
because I've heard and I've read that that's the most important thing that he's concerned about. So can you elaborate on that? The sure. And, 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 okay. yeah. That's a good question. Um, so I, I was actually in Ukraine a few months before the events of 2013, 2014 happened. So in 2013, you had these series of protests called Euromaidan or the revolution, the revolution of dignity. Um, and so these are because then President Viktor Yanukovych, he refused to sign an EU association agreement. And this was overwhelmingly popular in Ukraine. Ukraine wanted to join the EU. So this was a slap in the face of the Ukrainian people. But they also knew it was because Yanukovych was aligned with Putin. So the protests happened. He sends in special forces and they shoot and kill 100 um, Ukrainian civilians. So this is called the Heavenly Hundred. So Yanukovych has run out, like literally homeboy runs to Russia. And he's, I believe he's still, he's living in Russia or Belarus right now. And so a new uh, Ukrainian government is elected and they immediately want to join the EU. And that becomes, you know, their key goal. And so what happens is after this new government is formed, Putin starts this lie. He says the new government is fascist. It's Nazis. And it was put in place by the West. He fundamentally argues that the new Ukrainian government is a Western puppet. So all these things we see Putin, you know, accusing Ukraine of today, he was accusing them of that in 2014. It's a totally different administration of president. So in 2014 in the East, in Luhansk and Donetsk, so this is where knowledge of Russia can be helpful. You have these things called oblasts. So they're like super counties, essentially. They're very large regions. Within the two oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk, you have smaller sections of those which declare themselves they want to be independent and they want to be aligned with Russia. So you have pro-Russian forces there who are, you know, given who are pretty much armed by the Russians, and you have a hot war that begins. So over eight years, over 13,000 Ukrainians have died in the war in Luhansk and Donetsk. So these two regions are the ones Putin declares independent and recognizes it as independent the day before the war that we're seeing right now in 2022 began. So that was a pretext. Another important aspect of this is Crimea. The Crimean Peninsula was Ukrainian. It was given to Ukraine during the Soviet period in 1954 uh, by Nikita Khrushchev. So this is Ukrainian territory. In 2014, a fake memorandum was held. And I say fake because people are voting outdoors with guns pointed at them held by people who are in the Russian military. And suddenly, overnight, Crimea decides it's going to become part of Russia. And literally overnight, Crimea becomes Russian. Russian law is, you know, enforced. And here's something many people don't realize. And this is why I always argue all this happy-go-lucky feeling for Ukraine is very new because it was not here in 2014. Crimean Tatars are a minority population. They're Muslims. And immediately when Russian power was established in Crimea, their community leaders were imprisoned and Crimean Tatar cultural practices and religious practices were oppressed. So when I warn about what could happen to black and brown people in Ukraine, it's because we've seen what happened in Crimea and it does not look good. Well, I mean, we're watching in real time, somebody sneaking out video footage of Russians being arrested, Russians having their phones snatched from them, young, young people snatched and the cops are going through it to make sure they're not out there posting anything. We're watching uh, five, six, seven thousand people get arrested every day. Right. Um, and in Russia. 
at the exact same time that there's a misinformation and disinformation campaign where the majority of Russians don't even really know what's going on. They're, they're being told that the Russians are there to supply humanitarian uh, efforts to Ukraine and food and things. At the same time, we have a six foot eight black woman in custody in Russia. Can we talk about that when we come back? Brittany Griner, um, 866-801-8255. Was she coming or going? Because I know she has played with this. Um, do you have to go? I'm sorry. Smith is telling me that you do you have another appointment? I've got okay? seven Probably. minutes. OK. All right. So tell me about Brittany Griner before we let you go. Tell me what's going so on. Brittany Griner, she was leaving Moscow using the green corridor, the humanitarian corridor for Americans leaving Russia. She was leaving because she was following the State Department's, you know, uh, orders. What happened was allegedly she was found with um, vape cartridges. So people are saying she had drugs. She had vape pen cartridges that the Russian state says had hashish oil. CBD oil, THC oil, all of that in Russia is all lumped together as the same. And so like in the video, you see her opening a package and it's like two small containers. It's, it's not nothing significant. But she is in Russian custody. She was put in custody at the airport. She has been in custody since February. We have no idea what day. So if you hear a specific number, it's speculation. The Russian government has not released the day. They only said in February 2022. What is important is she is facing significantly, like significant charges. So instead of like a misdemeanor possession, she's not facing that. She is facing five to 10 years in Russian prison. She's been charged with large-scale drug um, transportation. Like a drug dealer. Yes. I mean, and not just any drug dealer, but like a narco, you know, drug dealer flying across the country, bringing drugs in an airplane when it was vape cartridges, which are legal in most of the United States. Now, during the offseason, she played for a Katerin Berg uh, the mm-hmm. Russian Premier League. She played in there after the WNBA because they don't get paid enough. So they most mm-hmm. players go overseas and make this money. So she's been there for years. She's six foot eight, black woman yep. with locks. They know who she is. Was this political? Yes. I mean, I can't believe it's not. And and when people and I try to tell people the the laws change in Russia so quickly and very especially with drugs, they're very much in flux. And I mean, American laws are changing about vapes right now. So it's very possible last year when she played, it was totally legal. And then the law changed since she's been back. But also they could have known that she had these vape pens and she was just vaping. And But because of the political situation, they saw an opportunity and they took it. So it's very like she is being used as a pawn in this war. What does Russian jail look like? We have a minute. What does that look like? Especially for someone it's, who's six foot eight. Oh, Jesus. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Human rights violations are constantly happening in Russian prisons and jails. Tuberculosis is running rampant in Russian prisons and jails and COVID-19. So like when I say we're talking about her future and her life, we are talking about her future and her life. Two Americans, two white men, Americans who have been in prison in Russia have talked about extreme abuse. One of them has been in and out of the hospital. um, And we have it. I think his family hasn't heard from him in a few months. Um, So we need to get her out because this is very serious. Oh my God. Um, you just ran, you know, can you come back, Kimberly? Let's, let's continue after, after the swarm, we're still going to be talking about it. Cause that's what we do here. We're not going to stop talking about it. You're a delight, but more importantly, I appreciate your scholarship. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. Appreciate you. Yeah. You, you are earning that. 
Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.